This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Me, Tim Hamilton, at Dage, and looking forward to making Calling All Pensioners a must for all pensioners. Good afternoon and welcome to Suite 212, an in-depth look at the political and social issues surrounding the arts. Here at Resonance 104.4 FM, London's boldest a writer's radio station. and your host, Lara Alonso Corona. Today I will be talking to Paul Grave, writer and journalist specializing in comics, author of books such as Manga, 60 Years of Japanese Comics, and the more recent Mangasia, The Definite Guide to Asian Comics. Hello, Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Laura. Great to be here. Before we get into any definition of manga, I was curious to see how you got drawn into the medium. How did you uh, get the started of manga and working on it? Yeah, I mean, my manga history is pretty, pretty long because I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> By a little bit. But yeah, I do go back to the 70s at least when you couldn't get manga basically in English. as We're used to having so much manga available mm. now. Uh, and obviously all the scanlations and stuff on the internet. But way back when you just couldn't get it, I used to uh, uh, go um, to one of, the, one of the, the Japanese bookshops that was near St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and they used to have, they, had, they had these magic sort of uh, um, copies of manga books and manga magazines, which of course, if you've seen them, they, they can be so two, three, four hundred maybe. There's one that came out over 2,000 pages actually, which was just ridiculous. It was a special anniversary one, but they are enormous comics and I have always loved comics. Comics are something I've never been able to grow out of because whenever I think I might grow out of them something else comes along whatever it might be that speaks to me now or that excites me again because my goddess medium is still incredible and so manga came along in for me in the 70s um, first of all I couldn't read them of course but you can read manga so much about manga is visual visual storytelling is so powerful and it's a visual storytelling that I hadn't really experienced in western comics I was I read French as well as English, so I read quite a bit of European comics, French comics especially, and British and American, so I had all those those kind of backgrounds. So, yeah, that was the beginning. And um, I'm really glad that uh, I've been open to manga. Um, I do understand that we're going to have some listeners out there that, if they are listening, of course, <laughs> which, is, which is good, hopefully, but some of them might be going, well, I'm not too sure about this manga stuff. I keep hearing about it all the time. Why should I be interested? And there are things that put people off about manga, yeah. which we could touch on. Yeah. But once you get past some of those stereotypes and some of those particular stylis, stylizations and tropes, which can be a bit odd, once you understand them and get into them, they are, they are so rich. They are probably the richest um, form of comics on the planet. Yeah, um, perhaps we can start uh, clearing some misconceptions yeah, about manga. Yeah, I hope we could. Manga. I hope we could. Yeah, like, yeah. there's still a lot of people who think uh, manga is um, a genre, like a genre, s yes. science fiction or even pornography. Mm, but manga mm. is not a genre, it's mm -mm. a medium. And exactly. it encompasses all kinds of genres and all kinds of audiences. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I visited Tokyo some years ago, one of the images that really stayed with me was being on the trains and everybody was reading manga mm. and you had a 12-year-old reading manga mm. and you have a 50-year-old woman mm -hmm. reading manga. So it's for everyone. For everybody, absolutely for everybody. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. struck me when I was in Tokyo, I mean, you see on, on, on the Tokyo subway, that it's, it's less so now, I think, because more people are reading, of course, their, their manga on their smartphones. But yeah, I, mean, I think... I think Japan is the only country I'm aware of. I mean, obviously, I've not been everywhere, but whenever I go, I try and look what's happening in comics. It's the only culture I've seen where manga are so disposable, are so ephemeral. I mean, that's actually quite significant because people buy these big magazines, as I mentioned. Some of them weeklies, like Shonen Jump is the most famous one, but the other magazines too. Um, and then they don't keep them. They just and they've got they've got these kind of transparent plastic bags on the on the metro you know platforms, and you go. Wait a minute, there's a manga magazine there. And I'm afraid I did actually reach in and grab it. Yeah, me too. Um, buy them from the benches at the end of the day. Oh, you could do that too, can't you? You can get that. them that way too, but you can just get them out of the rubbish, mm. you know. <laughs> and um, But saying that, yes, everyone's reading them one way or the other, now, now more digitally. At the same time, I still think there's a little bit of, of tension about manga in Japan because it's quite a maverick 
um, medium. It's not very well behaved at times. It's, you know it's got a, a sort of darker side. It's got a very much more adult and quirky side. And so I, I had this little experience where I was sitting on the, the, the Tokyo subway. You may know most of the, the subway trains just you have seats facing each other. But at one end of this, this particular carriage, there was a kind of little kind of area where you two, two people could sit opposite each other, a little, little kind of little group area. So on one side, there was, there was this um, uh, salary man, a you know, fairly... Um, well, he had a, I don't know, maybe in his 40s or something like that. Anyway, but he had a, had a, a manga magazine. Opposite him was an older couple, um, a man and a woman, um, quite f- sort of formal-looking, quite kind of straight-laced, a bit buttoned up at the top and a bit kind of not too sure about this. And the guy opposite was obviously had had um, too much to drink or just been working too hard because he was slumping over, and he had a manga open on his lap. Um, and I could see, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And of course, he did eventually just nod off, and the manga landed on the lap of this lady, and it was like as if he'd thrown up over her. Or something. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it really was. <laughs> it was really kind of, oh, it's this, it's a manga, you know. And it was <laughs> so that made me realise that you know it's not. 100% approved. It's a little bit um, uh, looked down upon. <laughs> um, I, I know this is a big question, but maybe you can give us a brief definition of what mm. manga is, what makes it different from other yeah, types well, you, of comics. Yeah, obviously manga is comics. Yeah. So you can't say it's not comics, but it is comics in, in, a, in a different form. Um, the word's kind of interesting too to think about because... Um, one people one definition people have been using recently is the ga, for example, means drawings, uh, and the man at the beginning means kind of like um, irrepressible or out of control or spontaneous, this kind of thing. I mean, one of the definitions has been manga is, is pictures run riot, which is quite an interesting definition. There's a tendency to therefore think from that that this is like stuff that's out of control and it's a bit dangerous and it has that kind of a just perhaps slight t- tinge that's been added to the to the meaning of the word but essentially it does mean living sp- very spontaneous very vibrant drawings and they are, of course are a, a narrative form that's the most important thing about them um and they're a weird interesting mixture because they the japanese would would quite rightly want to connect them to a lot of the early famous printmakers of the 18th, 19th century people the most famous one obviously is hokusai who once heard yeah. of hokusai's wave for example and that is that it's possible to do that connection. But I think if there hadn't been the crucial in, um, in contact, the opening up of Japan to the West in the around the 1860s or so, 50s, 60s, when they opened up to not only to, to, to all kinds of trade, but also they discovered essentially the American comic book and the British cartoon, the British cartoon especially came in first actually in many, many ways, and the French cartoon as well. They were things they hadn't really, they had, not that they hadn't done them, but they hadn't seen them the way that, that the West had done them. And that fused and blended and, uh, in with, with all of their amazing history of graphic art and graphic entertainment, the okiyoi floating world prints, which are just exquisite works. Ironically, of course, they are, they're exquisite works. We say that now. We know they influenced Lautrec and Van Gogh and many other artists. But actually, at the time, in the late 19th, mid to late 19th century, they weren't really very well regarded. They were kind of cheap, sort of trashy. They were like manga. They were cheap, disposable. They Hopefully, this will happen with well, manga. Well, in a way, it's happening, the, isn't it? It's yeah. happening now. With, it's happening now. It's, but it's like, it's, there's a parallel there, I think, but, uh, with it. And um, so, as a definition, I just think you have to think of it's, it's comics, but, but not quite as you know them. I have just, just recently described them. Uh, I just read an article for The Guardian about that this, the manga phenomenon and described them as comics evolved. Because I do believe that I've looked at, I do look at look comics everywhere as much as I can. And I do believe that manga's where the rest of us might be in maybe 10, 20, 30 years, maybe never. I don't know. Because they really have just said, this is a, a medium we can do anything with. Um, and it's a medium for everybody and by everybody. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that attracts me more to manga is the mm. sheer variety of mm. themes and styles. Mm. And one of the most curious aspects of manga that sometimes people don't quite understand mm. is that it's not separated by genre, but by demographics. Mm-hmm. And they have these categories according to the magazine the manga right. is published on. So maybe you can talk about the difference between shonen, yeah, so yeah, 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 all those. Well, in a way, we had a similar thing happen to us. I mean, uh, certainly way back in, say, the turn of the century or so, around the time when um, things like uh, the early club magazines for Japanese kids were definitely de- segregated. It was definitely a boys, the shonen one, and definitely a girls one, the shoujo one, and you knew you wouldn't read it. You know, <laughs> they were very definite. And in that sense, it was almost a slightly kind of conditioning. This is how, this is the way boys should be. They should be interested in action and sport and being 
you know, tough and resilient and the girls should be more interested in pretty things and romance and, and dreams and flowers and perhaps a bit of sport a little bit later on. In other words, they were very separated. We had a similar thing in the UK. We had, we had definitely uh, magazine comics, basically, that were for all story papers originally that were definitely sex-segregated. And that does exist and does persist to this day. And obviously, we have it in the West as well. I mean, you have you have you have Barbie, for example, which is not really meant to be for. Well, anyway, it's, it's mainly <laughs> aimed at women or, or girls. But I also think what's interesting about it is that those segregations have actually started to blur. I mean, there's also seinen, which is the adult male category, because what we've started to find is there are artists that are, you know, for example, women that are making shonen manga or men that are drawing. Uh, girls' comics, which they used to do, and they've come back to it to an extent. The actual s- thing is more fluid than it than than it used to be, um, and I think that's a very positive thing. It actually means that, and, and as a result, you get manga that are, people would go, "Well, is this a shonen or a shoujo?" We go, "Actually, it's a bit of both sometimes." Um, and also in terms of age ranges, you might assume Shonen Jump, it's it's one of the most famous ones, that it would be read by its target demographic would be kids of maybe maybe eight to 15 or something like that. But but actually there are many adults, of course, who keep reading these magazines. And so it's got a very elastic uh, approach. And I think um, that is another definitely another strength to it. The main point is it's not is that there are really are manga for every age group, every interest, um, every sexual orientation, and really literally from the cradle to the grave. I mean, actually, if you've you've got a manga about being pregnant and mm. having a baby and childcare and all that, yeah, kind there's of thing. a lot of non-fiction manga exactly. nowadays. There yeah. are a lot of those, and there are also ones which um, you know are for the very youngest kids to get them into into reading with just pictures right through to the end of life mm. and right and through to even retirement and corporations have their own manga to oh, yeah. show their employees how it all works exactly like it's instruction used yes. educational informational kind of manga around and they're on they're, they're used in so many ways in terms of uh, public announcements public uh, on the subway itself you'll you'll find there are uh, information uh, comics uh, as well it is literally, as I say, it's comics that have evolved into a way of being part of everyday culture to the point where we almost, the same way we would think about maybe with TV or something. It's just like ubiquitous and taken for granted and actually taken perhaps almost, almost too much for granted in a way in Japan because they've not realized, they're now maybe realizing in the last few years or so, last 10 years, 20 years or so, that actually this is an amazing medium. It's not just some kind of stuff that's churned out like sausages. It actually is a remarkable, expressive, creative um, uh, outlet um, and a very important part of Japanese culture. Um, your thoughts on the origins of uh, manga linked to century-old tradition of mm. image-based narrative in Japan, mm. but also it's I think it's crucial the unfortunate reality of the United States occupation in the country Absolutely. after Second World War, yeah, yes. which introduced American comics uh, to the population via yeah. the soldiers. So. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is, as you say, after the defeat from 45 to about the early 50s or so, wasn't it? There was a, a very... 52. 52, exactly. A very, very important period. I mean, American comics had been available before, certainly in some of the classic sort of newspaper strip characters like Popeye and Mickey Mouse and, and many others. But um, it's an interesting development. I've been looking at this because <clears throat> by and large, by and large, before... The end of the Second World War, and of course during the Second World War, there was no no Western comics were allowed in. There was a lot of very propagandist comics um, made in Japan to promote the, the war effort and the military machine. But before the Second World War, you, uh, there were a lot of a lot of American comics were available and were very uh, imitated and copied. They were more humor based, more kind of family comedy, a little bit of maybe kids' adventure stuff. But they didn't actually take on the new trend that came in in before the war in America, which was basically realistically drawn, well, more or less realistically drawn, I suppose, but basically adventure, gritty, realistic kinds of comics. If you visualize something like Flash Gordon or Dick Tracy or Terry and the Pirates, you might not know so well, but that was drawn in an incredible black and white churrascuro contrast style, which was completely different to what anything had been done pretty much in manga. So in a way, what happened is that, yes, after the Second World War, a lot of American comic books came in particularly. And interesting also, by the way, there was a family comic strip called Blondie, um, which was kind of around before, but was particularly pushed after the Second World War by the Americans as a kind of, here's how you must be as the idealized dream, American dream family, you know, Blondie and Dagwood yeah. with all their Democratic kids. Democratic family. So this is how to be American, which of course was the, the aspiration of that. 
but it meant that the, the new comic books that came in after the Second World War did add this kind of more, this darker, realistic edge, which is what led to uh, a different form of manga, which you might know, called Gekiga, um, which is, has the same ga as manga, the ga meaning drawings, but Geki means more basically dramatic, dark, um, basically it was the it was moving away from the kind of out of control wacky cartoony style that we associate with the big eyes and the kind of uh, disneyfied animation look and it was yeah moved, i wanted to yeah. to talk about geki gap yeah because um, that that was a very that came in very much from the american comics and uh, yeah. the the word was kind of used by uh, yoshihiro tatsumi mm. who has uh, whose work has been edited in, into English yes, by Adrian Tomine. Tomine, exactly. Tomine, yeah, 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 from Jordan Courtley. From Jordan Courtley, right. giving yeah, yeah. it some literary cred that not many mangas, you it's know, true. get. In fact, it's interesting because he was one of the first manga to be published in Spain, in El Vibra. Oh. <laughs> Way back in the underground era, just yeah. after Franco uh, mm. moved, moved, uh, disappeared. And uh, so that was some of the first manga you could read in Spanish, was Tatsumi's stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, obviously, Gekiga... Um, it's was trying to reflect the more complex reality of the post-war. Yeah. Uh, and it was also interesting because it was aiming at a different readership because the readership mm. was getting older, even if um, uh, you know, there, there were still plenty of kids' comics being made. By the time you got to the mid to late 50s, there was a whole other market developed for, for these... Uh, uh, for the, for the, the Kashiwanya, the, the, the rental library shops where you would... Um, go and just rent, just literally like going to a blockbuster as it used to be, or going. Or where would you go now? I don't know. But anyway, where you'd rent something um, for just for one night, or, or or read it on the premises for very little money. And this whole rental library thing is a, a, it's a phenomenon across the whole of Asia. Much of Asia has got this system because people don't necessarily have the money to own the comics. They don't even want to own them necessarily, but they want to read them, and they can just put them back. Um, and the Kashibonya area, the Kashibonya um, market was a specialized market where these new artists like Tatsumi and his other cr other cronies, they were still very young, in their 20s, passionate about making comics, but also wanting to push them away perhaps from being quite as cute and Disney-fied and essentially youth-directed, youth children-orientated. So they came up, there was a whole phase of new publishers, quite kind of fly-by-night, dodgy ones. They're often based in Osaka, not in Tokyo. Um, and they supplied these special rental libraries with comics you couldn't get on the newsstands or in the bookshops. And a lot of them were much grittier. They were kind of crime, gangster, uh, samurai. They were quite gritty, darker stories. And they were also very influenced by movies. And in many ways, they brought in a whole t you know, language for movies that was, was different. Yeah. Another of uh, the, the authors of that mm. period, uh, starting in the late uh, 50s, mm. is uh, Shigeru Mizuki. Mm. And I know you are a fan of uh, Mizuki's Showa, which yeah. you chose as the best manga published in English in uh, 2014. Yeah, amazing. It's absolutely one of my favorites, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, and he is an incredible artist. Yeah, really, can really you talk incredible. a bit about him and um, maybe Kitaro? Yeah, too, the I mean, it, this is the thing. Each of these artists has such a fascinating story. And of course, there's, I just got given a friend of mine, Dan Byron, who runs the London Manga artist meetup group which I'm just giving a little plug for there <laughs> which is a lovely monthly get together people who make manga here uh, he kind of gave me a, 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 a catalogue for a massive Mizuki um, exhibition in Japan fantastic work yeah Mizuki is fascinating because he straddles not only the Gakiga territory as we mentioned um, and went on to become a, a, one of the, the gr true greats of, of, of comics uh, in Japan. But he has an interesting story even before that, because there's another route, which is why <laughs> to explain manga, that is the origin of manga, and in many ways the origin of anime, which you may know is Kamishibai. And Kamishibai is the paper theatre um, um, outlet for storytelling, which he was some of the first things that he did was, was painting some of the single image paintings that were put into this strange kind of touring, portable TV, almost before TV. This is going back at least to the 30s or 40s. And um, the whole history of this thing is interesting because it was um, a way for kids to get excited, exciting um, uh, stories in picture form, narrated live by a storyteller. But on the streets, but kind the of streets. like marionettes. Exactly. Or... And it was a fascinating business because there were people making the the paintings that were then used uh, in these touring on these touring bikes. It was a bike that you used then set up as a little TV stand, and then you'd hear this rattle going, and you would know that the, the commercial by man was in the neighbourhood. <laughs> and of course, the first thing before you could see any story, you'd have to buy some sweets. 
because <laughs> got to get, the guy's got to get the money, right? <laughs> and, he's, and he's kind of, the, I think the storyteller has hired or rented, I'm not quite sure how it works exactly, but he, he had to pay his rent because he's got the storytelling stuff. Anyway, the point is that Shigeru Mizuki was, one of his first breaks was working in that form, in, I mean, working on those comics forms, um, and then working in the, in the alternative form and the Gakiga form. And significance about Mizuki, as you know, is that he was the artist who was able to bring back into the culture in a major way a lot of the slightly forgotten um, yokai and spiritual and supernatural and all the ideas, the folklore of, of Japan, which in a way was being pushed away by the Americans mm. and by the, the drive to modernize, to westernize, to kind of, oh, this is all... Old, old, antiquated, sort of pre-modern stuff. Yeah, we, because we those need. were dangerous and yeah. imperialistic. Anything that the smell of the past exactly, was thrown exactly. upon by Americans. Yeah, yeah, Americans. I mean, during their occupation from forty-five to fifty-two, they were doing some quite heavy censorship. Yeah. I mean, there were things that weren't allowed. You certainly couldn't have any sort of violent samurais up uh, in in manga to, to, to kind of maybe mm. inspire any kind of insurrection or protest. Yeah, in in movies as well. One of the curiosities right? of that era is that. In movies, you couldn't show American jeeps on the streets, so people who mm. were uh, shooting films on the street had to make sure that no American right. military jeep or right. car was oh, shown. Interesting. Mm. They had to edit them out. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's interesting. Yeah, and Mizuki, he was the one through Gekage no Kitaro uh, and other series too, and sh and um, Non Bar, which is the wonderful autobiographical story of him growing up in a village with his with a kind of grandma, sort of aunt grandma figure who introduced him to so many of these uh, legends and folklore and but really completely awakened his childhood fascination which became an adult um, uh, profession essentially adult expertise he became a kind of spokesperson uh, to, to popularize repopularize what could otherwise possibly have been forgotten and um, yeah his work is, is absolutely outstanding really really is Mm, and available in English. Yeah, which is his non-fiction work is really yeah. very important. He did some, why. yeah, exactly. And also, perhaps the most important um, autobiographical um, work of his, of course, is um, uh, onwards to our, towards our glorious yeah. death. I think it's called. I think it's said in the Pacific War. It was when he lost his drawing arm. Mm. I can't quite remember which one it was. But everyone, it was the, the, one, the left one. Was it the left one? Yeah. Right. Okay. He was a lefty <laughs> like me. <laughs> <laughs> but he literally lost his left arm and was able to retrain his right, train his right arm to, to, to carry on drawing, which is pretty incredible. And that was a real, obviously much later, not done at the time, but it was a real strong invective against the um, the, the horrors of war and the stupidity of, of, of Yeah, of his, that his of, works of are very critical of both yeah. Japanese militarism and American Yeah, militarism. it's quite balanced. It's not yeah. just saying Americans yeah. are bad and we were wonderful. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, like I wanted to commend another figure of uh, this era, which is Sanpei Shirato, mm. uh, who I think it's very interesting because he was the son of a communist. He was. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. He was one of the found founders of the Vanguard magazine Garo, yeah. which is very important. Mm. Uh, his work uh, often features um, ninja and samurai, but mm -hmm. with a lot of political themes. Right. And I think it's uh, really interesting that uh, Nagisao Shima, mm. the film director of uh, In the Realm of the Senses, yes. adapted one of uh, his mangas to yes. into a film, Ban yes. of Ninja. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's an example of that. He's important. And um, Shirato's got uh, such a fantastic design to his artwork. I mean, it really is very... Uh, expressive, it's sad that it's not, he's not more published it's not, in England. It's not yeah. very well published, is it? It's not yeah. translated very much. I've got, it's just in French. I've got quite a few of the books that uh, have been done there, like his famous Kamui stories, which were yeah. really influential. It's very striking visually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had in English, um, from Viz, we had a later Kamui series put into in, into English. But And you're right to mention, and Garo um, is kind of, again, one of those things that's much more important than maybe its circulation. <laughs> I gather from, this, there's an American expert that I'm a, a friend with, Ryan Holmberg, who writes about... Uh, Garrow quite a bit. He, he's, a, he's an expert on, on it. Apparently, his maximum circulation was only ever around 80,000, mm -hmm. and its minimum was as little as 3,000 at, at its low point, which is actually, doesn't maybe 80,000 sounds quite good, actually, to us now, <laughs> but actually, I mean, it, Japan's got 100, about 120-something thousand, misery, million people, mm -hmm. and uh, most circulations are, are considerably more than that. It was always a little bit experimental, initially more educational, um, and certainly not aiming at a mainstream, but it had such an impact. The, the, the innovative uh, artists who worked there, the, it was a monthly magazine, so there was room for people, time for people, basically, to develop 
stories that weren't so driven by this terrible That's another pressure. particularity of manga that yeah. you have your weekly magazines and yeah. you have your monthly magazines. Yeah, and so even bi-monthly sometimes yeah. some of them are, or bi-weekly some of them are bi-weekly every mm-hmm. two weeks. But yeah, yeah. But the the, the Garo had a, was a space for for a different kind of manga to develop. It had an enormous influence. I remember speaking with um uh, an artist Japanese artist based here and uh, her pen name is Inko and she remembers seeing copies of Garo in school and um, because it was it had started off as being a sort of educational title that was partly how it was advertised when it first on, on the, even on the cover and so there seemed to be copies that getting into the classroom even though the content um, was actually a little bit adult maybe but also was actually quite edgy as you say and quite politicized it wasn't uh, and in fact that 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 had a big influence on her a decision to pursue manga as a career she just saw another kind of manga she'd not seen elsewhere. And this generation also influenced, uh, mm. curiously, uh, Osamu Tezuka, who had, uh, you know, yeah. kind of, he's always referred as the father of uh, manga. Well, Even if our listeners know nothing of manga, they yeah. have heard of him. He's probably the most famous name, isn't he? So yes. maybe we Tezuka. can, you know, just talk a bit about how, why he's important. Well, we, ha- we, see, we could have started with him in a way, but of yeah. course, because so much of it does start with him. Um, but he, yeah, he's... Um, a phenomenon, and he is known literally as the god of manga. That is the the, the term in in Japan for him. Um, and he's not just the god of manga. Frankly, he's also pretty much the god of anime, as in Japanese animation, because he's and and he only lived. He only lived. He didn't even make it to sixty one. He didn't get. He, he died before he got to his sixty first birthday. And the, the amount that he packed into his life. Mm-hmm. As well as doing all the stuff that he did for, for manga and anime, he was also he also qualified in Western medicine, so he was all set to become a doctor, um, which of course comes through in some of his manga as well, like Blackjack, yeah. for example. And so he's an extraordinary man. You just wish he could have lived longer. You wish I just wish he would have practiced <laughs> some of his medicine and realized I should perhaps be relaxing a bit or not driving myself so much to make so much work. Um, and yeah, how do you where do you start with him? But the, he is also someone who brought together a lot of artists to, to assist, who went on to become major names like uh, Shinomori Shitaro, who went on to do Cyborg 009 and others. Um, he kind of codified the genres. He as did we in many ways. He did. Them. Yeah, he did. He brought he he, he didn't invent them, but he codified them. You yeah. might, might to say that because there was a lot going on that he tapped into from before the war, from these amazing earlier comics, earlier forms of manga. He's also obviously heavily influenced by animation. Disney. He, he, Disney, and also yeah. my, the Fleischer Brothers, Betty Boop and things like that. His dad apparently had a movie projector and used to show the films. And in many ways, I've always felt, he said once that, um, uh, how was it, uh, manga is my wife, but anime is my mistress, something like that, I think. And I always felt that, um, in a way, he, he went bankrupt, actually, in the late 60s, his, his animation company. He, did, he poured so much into uh, money and effort into making anime successful. Um, and I've always wondered whether he had any regrets about that because it was a very, very demanding and draining, literally financially draining um, medium for him. Um, but of course, what, what it led to is that it led to anime becoming such a powerful force in the world. He was able to get his Astro Boy character, Tetsuo Natomo, uh, in, in, into, into English, into American English on American TV stations within nine months of it being released in America. It came out in January in Japan, September. It was in, on American TV. And they thought, this is amazing. How was someone able to do that? And um, it was, I think, the first taste that many parts of the world had of, 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 of anime. Uh, so he was mm. really the, the champion he of He was doing mostly a manga for younger audiences, but then mm. around this period he changed and started right. writing things like M.W. and yeah. As you say, his style changed, his subjects mm. changed. You say he did definitely look at Garo. He looked at also the way, the way that Garo and the Kashibonia rental library artists who also moved into the manga magazines, which then became weeklies and, became, and added more adult titles like manga action others in the late 60s. So the whole medium was kind of building up and yeah, sourcing these artists. Manga was he had, to, he, he had to respond. I mean, Tezuka actually was extremely competitive. And, you know, he didn't really <laughs> want to... If someone was doing better or someone was doing something that he thought, OK, I must try and do that. I must, I must move with those times, keep up with it and, and, and innovate, constantly innovate. Mm, there was a time when manga was changing just like Japan was changing because, you know, in a few years we go from the 
summer of 1960 protests to mm. about the treaty between Japan and yeah. the United States to yeah. opposition to the Vietnam War, mm. nuclear weapons, the construction mm. of the Narita mm. Airport, which culminated on Japan having its own 1968 moment. Exactly. Um, yeah. And this is, you know, you in your book, uh, Mangeisha, you mm. talk about how... Uh, Manga can reflect and rewrite history. Exactly. So maybe you can talk <clears throat> about some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th this is this this growth of manga and particularly moving in towards more adult content coincided with these turbulent period through the sixties into the seventies. And there's no doubt it was, it was it was part of that. It was actually it wasn't even just reflecting it. Sometimes it was kind of inspiring it or uh, uh, spreading the ideas behind it. Um, it was read by lots of students, of course, who had weren't normally the audience, hadn't been maybe the, the prime audience for comics uh, in, in Japan. And th there were some remarkable manga. One, I forget the title, forgive me at the moment, but it's one that we mentioned in the Manga Asia uh, book and exhibition that was in um, a mainstream boys, regular shonen magazine. Um, but it was dealing with really tough uh, issues of, of the conflicts at the time, uh, the armed conflicts and Japan's position in, that, in, that, in, in those. Um, and had, it was a very outspoken comic, uh, and remarkable. For, for, it's the kind of thing you couldn't have imagined it being in a British weekly mm -hmm. like the Beano or Valiant or something. But it was it was unthinkable. And I think the um, the the period also, of course, uh, led to um, a, 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 the establishment essentially of of, of adult manga um, with a lot of challenges on, along the way. I mean, there were protests. One of the things that people perhaps have an idea of is that manga is. Um, literally irrepressible and actually not controlled in some way but there was there's there's always been checks and complaints and and issues and court cases and this kind of thing which have led to the, the medium having to regroup i think one of the secrets behind the rise of manga which is something i haven't written enough about yet is the um legitimacy the kind of the seriousness the re respect that the publishers have Publishers like Kodansha and Sugarcan, especially, those are the two of the, the four biggest ones, but those two in particular are not just comics publishers. They are big, major, literary, serious publishers, Sugarcan, with, especially with an educational uh, remit is among, amongst its many, many uh, avenues. They are enormous companies. And awards for manga are considered literary awards. So in that yeah. sense, mm. exactly. They are now. But I think in a way, the fact that, 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 that uh, you've got that serious publisher behind them, they're not... I mean, some of the publishers, say, in America, for example, when they started up, like Marvel and DC, were fairly dodgy publishers. Really. They weren't really very respectable. They weren't doing anything else. They were, if they were doing anything else, they were doing slightly cheesy, sexy pulp magazines. They were not you know, in the, on the same level. Having, so I think that helped being long-term, very well-established, gigantic publishers. That's helped uh, manga a lot. And then also the, the, the fact that manga became, during this period, more engaged with serious issues, troubled some people, of course, but also gave them a, 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 made them a space where things could be said, where sometimes things can't be said so easily in Japan. Uh, I just remember our uh, listeners that this oh, yes. is Sweet uh, <laughs> Hello, 212, <laughs> and this I'm talking with Paul Grave about manga. Um, well, we've we've talked enough about men. Let's let's oh, go yes, talk about on. women. Where are the women? And so your <laughs> manga, mm. like it's another demographic that would come of age in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. It's the, what we call girls' comics or soyo manga. Mm -hmm. uh, these words had been targeted at very young readership up until that moment, but then they started evolving into more adult mangas. And I wanted to read a quote from Matt Thorne oh, yeah. in his introduction to Moto Hagio's A Drunken Dream and mm -hmm. other stories about this period of time. Mm. And he says... This in turn triggered the comics boom of the 1960s, creating a sudden demand for, for talent to work in many new magazines, which were rapidly transforming from general children's magazines into comics magazines. This coincided with changes in society views of proper roles for women. If women could be elected to the national diet of Japan, why couldn't they draw comics? Publishers opened the spigot, and what had been a trickle of young women artists became a cascade. Almost overnight, the male artists who had been creating girls' comics moved over to the new boys' magazines, and a generation of young women took over. Considering that Americans tend to think of Japan as horribly backwards in terms of gender equality, it's ironic that this gender revolution took place 30-odd years ago in Japan, and has yet to happen in the U.S. 
Yeah, absolutely. It has yet to happen. I mean, maybe it is happening a little bit now, hopefully. But yeah. yeah and it, and, it, and that extraordinary figure I read um, just was that of the around 5,000 or so uh, working professionals in Japan working on manga, half of them, nearly half of them, are women. To have yeah, that this is one. parity, whereas, I mean, I know in France, maybe the figures may, maybe has grown from maybe being 5, 6, 7% to about maybe 12%. It's getting bigger. Um, most other countries just don't have as many women not only making the manga, but the readership is also 50-50. It's many, many women reading them. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I think this is one of uh, those preconceptions mm. uh, people have about manga that are often rooted in uh, racist uh, stereotypes. Mm. But uh, women in the industry of manga, they are a creati creative force mm. and they are an economical force. They, Absolutely. They yeah, earn yeah, a yeah. lot of money and... You have uh, many genres targeted at women mm -hmm. as uh, readers, mm -hmm. and even um, demographic that uh, traditionally have been for boys or for men, like shonen, mm -hmm. has had a lot of hits uh, written by yeah, women. Like, like Takahashi Rumiko, which is yeah. obviously about the even names. Yeah. Later, like uh, Full Metal Alchemist oh, yes, or yes, yes. Blue Exorcist. Absolutely. And even Seinen, who is uh, targeted at older adult men mm. uh, you have Musishi uh, you have the very violent gangsta right. manga right. Um, recently March comes in like a lion which mm. is set in the world of Shogi mm -hmm. exactly so so, that, so in a sense with some of those we began by defining that they, they are sort of sex defined uh, genres shoujo shonen seinen and of course there's jose or ready comic which is yeah. ladies comics they're actually those definitions are blurring quite a lot yeah. now aren't they they, yeah, have been, they have been for some time seinen looks like jose this yeah. day you couldn't tell absolutely yeah 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 I think it's very that's an important development um, uh, girls manga uh, in, started incorporating adult concerns in at the end of the 60s and early uh, 70s uh, especially thanks to the group known as the Year 24 Group mm. or the fabulous Year 24 Group, mm -hmm. also known as the 49ers because uh, there was this idea that they were born in 1949, even though only like one or two of them. It's 49 more or less. It's yeah. around that time. But they're, but they're all less. more or less the same age. Can you, can you talk about what this group was? Yeah, they, as you said, we've introduced the idea, you've introduced that, that the women were allowed to draw comics for girls, but more accurately, the women drawing were still pretty young. They were maybe in their early 20s or so, something like that. And a lot of the audience was probably maybe in their only maybe five, ten years younger. They were almost they were almost their own younger sisters, if you like. And if you sort of think about it, I mean, what were men doing? Doing all, I mean, men obviously in theory can make very good comics for girls, but they were often rather cliche. They were often thinking, this is what girls ought to like. Uh, they were kind of rather constrained, shall we say, let's put it that way. And the freshness and exuberance that the, this group brought in, the, 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 the 24 group, uh, 24 group, uh, was, was really important. Because one of the things they innovated most of all, I've always thought, is that they made um, um, emotion, feelings, as visually exciting on the page as action. We're all used to the speed lines and foreshortening and dramatic impact and diagonal cuts and everything that make boys' manga looks so incredibly energized. But um, you can do that with, with feelings because we know feelings are big things as well. But, but they portray them as these kind of um, textures, atmospheres, graphic devices. I've described them in, in my, my first manga book as being a bit like sort of psychic auras where mm -hmm. you take a special thing. And you, but probably right now I've got all sorts of strange glows coming around my head and you've got one. You've got them as well, <laughs> so, But it's a good way of, of actually making a, something which, could, which otherwise would be completely often unspoken, unexpressed, things we can't say are visualized, in, whether it's bouquets of flowers bursting out in, in, in shoujo romance stories, for example. Um, it, so they, 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 they reinvented the comics medium, and they inc including the way that panels could dissolve, could elide, could disappear completely. Sometimes images completely disappear, completely disappear. They literally, they, they, this was a new language of comics. Yeah, they look uh, strikingly modern really, compared really to other stuff in yeah, the era. Visually, yeah. they are. And also, they were very interested in science fiction. Yes. It's really curious. They You're advanced right. science fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hagi Omoto did some amazing ones, didn't she? So did uh, Takamiya Takame Keiko. Keiko with, Takame, yeah. yeah, with Toward Terror is an outstanding mm. one, for example. Mm. And uh, in fact, there's, um, I, know this is, I know this is going to get repeated later, but, but tonight, uh, we're, we're, I'm looking forward to very much finally getting to meet uh, Hagi Omoto, who's doing a, 
yeah. a, a talk. She's a yeah, guest me too. I think she's one Japan of the House. giants of incredible manga. Incredible figure. Yeah, incredible. And she should. I think she should be more recognized. Mm. She's getting more recognized uh, recognition now because Fantagraphic yeah. uh, published uh, her works in English in really yeah. gorgeous Beautiful editions. editions. Yeah, yeah. But I still hope more people get to know the. They really the should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's still working and working on fantastic newer stories. Mm. Uh, still, still very, very active. Yeah, and of course, during that period, you also had the incredible Rose of Versailles by Ikeda yeah. Ryoko, which is, I've met, I met many um, in researching manga, although I don't read Japanese, sadly, I was able to speak to many Japanese people. And many Japanese people here in Britain happen to be women who have oft who've said, I don't want to live in Japan for, for many reasons, including perhaps the, the, ex the lowered expectations, the pressures, the societal things of what, what, what Japan can put onto women. They've come over here, They've often fallen in love and married Western mm -hmm. people, but what inspired them to do that was um, uh, Lady Oscar in yeah. <laughs> Rose of Versailles, which we still haven't got in English. I think it's coming. I think it's coming maybe oh, this oh, year. Oh, of course. I've read it in Spanish. It's bad, but yeah. it's crazy. It's not in English. Mm -hmm. That's another absolute... It's, yeah, it's a crime. It's incredible. a wonderful yeah, yeah, yeah. tale. And, and that's the kind of example of where a story can have a, a huge life-changing impact on, mm -hmm. a re on a reader. Yeah. And it's a very politically involved story as well exactly. because it's Except about the French uh, it's Revolution. Antoinette, it's exactly French mm. Revolution. It's all of that as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. It's you know it's curious that you mentioned Lady Oscar because mm. uh, she's a cross-dressing character who yes. is kind of gender fluid. Um. Mm. Uh, so your manga and particularly the 49ers introduced the theme of uh, the queer themes and non-heterosexual characters into mm -hmm. into manga in especially with the heart of thomas obviously one of yeah. them and yeah yeah and the, the and poem of wind and trees that was the one by takamiya i think yeah 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 and uh, of course uh, in the beginning there was a lot of problematic stuff about these depictions of uh, queerness, but hmm. uh, myself, uh, as a non-straight person, I've always find that the way um, manga uh, dares to explore uh, issues of gender and sexuality in a really more fluid way or relaxed way than I've seen in the in the West, it hmm. attracts me, you know. And that's uh, especially, especially, with, especially, I think you would agree with me, especially with by women. It's women who are doing it more than men. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yes, uh, yes. very much fair to say. And that, there has been much discussion as to why the boys love Shodanai, or, or if you want to call it also the Yaoi, which is the other forms of it, why mm. that genre has has taken place in Japan and whether it what it what it's doing for its creators and and for its readers what does it what does it answer mm. what does it speak to and there have been theories that in fact certainly the the fact that essentially Japan still hasn't had as, an, as advanced uh, a liberation of women as we've seen in some other countries it could certainly go a lot further that this space where um, there are no women essentially involved it is a romance between men Maybe it's a way of exploring, it's a way of exploring other roles of taking away. Yes, exactly. Mm. A way of, of of being perhaps identifying with both roles. Yeah. And though the, the issue still for me is that quite a lot of the boys' love and, and uh, material still seems to to rely. I may, I may be wrong in this, but it seems to still tend to have a dominant and a less dominant, mm. shall we say? And that still seems to be to mirror the cliche relationship, the cliche balance of the, the masculine sort of dominating male and the more yeah, it's still female. A bit so that, but they're, but they're, but they're yeah. still having, they still can play with that. They can up, they can mm. reverse that. And it is it is an, it's, it's a complete genre invented yeah. by and for. Japanese women is not made for, for gay readers. Yeah, yeah of course, a bit of a downside of that is that it comes with a fair share of fetishization of gay sexuality from yeah. uh, straight women. But in the last few years, this has somewhat changed. Mm -hmm, um, we've mm -hmm. seen a lot of, uh, for example, lesbian authors who exactly. are this publishing. Exactly, the, the, the Yuri um, yeah. Um, um, sector. Uh, yeah, yeah. Recently, you know... <coughs> very, uh, very good ones, actually, yeah. yeah. Recently, a manga that has been quite a success in English, uh, My Lesbian Experience with uh, Loneliness yes, by yes. Gabi Navagata, yes. which I recommend to all the listeners because it's, it's really wonderful. And if anyone is interested in, in exploring this theme a bit deeper, there's a really good event um, this week in London. Mm. Uh, it's called Love and Desire Between Women in Girls Manga, and it's at the Swedenborg Hall uh, on the 26th. Uh, it's a talk by Yukari Fujimoto, who mm -hmm. is an expert of uh, gender and feminist themes yeah, in manga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. 
Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting, also interesting genre because I think the, the, that 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 some comic seems to come more from a kind of a, a diary kind of journal kind of style yeah. of manga, which is again something relatively new, and doesn't look like perhaps the manga we're used to. It's yeah, and it, yeah. And it started as a web comic, so yeah, you exactly. can see how manga is uh, changing. Yeah. Thanks to the new technologies. Uh, right and it's now. interesting because the the Yuri genre is an interesting one where I think for a while it was slightly claimed and co-opted by male creators yeah. for male readers. It was a male, you could argue it's a kind of the, the sort of balancing perhaps of Yaoi and Yuri is that it was men for men. Yeah. But, and so there was a risk of it, of lesbians not having their own space. Yeah, it was, space yeah, it could to, be very exploitative. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and which is why it's wonderful that we've got so much yeah. going on now, yeah, which is really, a lot, really, really interesting. And a lot that. getting published in English are, too, yeah, 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 from... Yeah. Uh, uh, houses like uh, Seven Seas or yes. Yen Press, they are uh, bringing out a lot of uh, Yuri right There's now. one, I can't remember, it's called like Whispered Words. Is that what it was called? Yes, I think it was. It was called Whispered Words. It's fantastic um, school romance. And it was just so... The thing that manga can do, which we ought to explain most of all, is because it's got so many pages, this is the thing that, we, that, that separates manga from all other comics forms, is that you've got the 48-page Tintin book or the 20-page comic book story in an American comic book, this, this kind of thing. The manga format allows for long stories and also for lengthening scenes where things aren't just crammed into a few panels. They can be over several, many, many pages, in fact. Mm. So especially when it comes to feelings, that's a very powerful medium to be able to then go, okay, let's take every nuance, every little micro-expression that would disappear in, in, in a film or, t yeah. film or TV, or you just go, oh my gosh, this is an incredibly slow scene. <laughs> now, I'm, <laughs> you get bored with it, I suppose. Yeah. In manga, you've got albums, you know, books and books of stories where sometimes, will they kiss? Will they touch? Mm. Well, it's like, Oh, it's incredibly tantalizing. Mm, there's and a lot of manga focus on characters yes, and characterization exactly. and instead of, of action. Yeah. Depth of feeling, not just mm. super superfluous feeling. Mm. And I think um, you can, I've, 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 I believe that basically manga is not about telling stories, it's about feeling yeah. stories. It might be, the feeling might just be excitement, obviously, if it's or terror, if it's Attack on Titan or whatever. But it also a lot of it is really getting to you, to the heart of the reader. See, yeah. I, I read somewhere that... Um, one of the things that was distinctive about manga is that it has mm -hmm. more close-ups of faces than other comic books in other parts of uh, the world. And I think... Yeah, maybe. maybe that allows yeah. you to connect more with the Yeah, the certainly, certainly if not if just close-ups. I mean, the, the cliché of the big eyes, which we've not mm. touched on very much, but th that is a bit of a cliché, of course, but it is also a very way, a way of you... Yeah. seeing, identifying expressions and, and, and the, the, the mirrors to the soul, if you like, that eyes can do. But I, th yeah, I think I think the the main thing is it's having more space, having the chance also to turn more pages, so that you, the, the that motion of a new page opening and then where are we now is something that only a hundred or two hundred page mangas can give you in their tanker bomb, you know, paperback mm -hmm. format, and, and maybe a graphic novel can, but it tends to be chucked together from maybe you know uh, from other comic books. It hasn't got necessarily. We need to also just touch on briefly, of course, that manga is having a massive impact on Western comics. I yeah. mean, it's influenced so many artists that actually a lot of the lessons that we're, the qualities that we're extolling here are being, of course, applied to Western yeah. comics around the world, essentially. Um, personally, the fact that manga is uh, mostly in black and white, mm. for me, helps a lot. Do you think? Because I don't get distracted as easily yeah. by colors. I can focus more on uh, the feelings, the stories. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, certainly some of the coloring we've got in comic books can be very kind of like just pressing all the buttons and yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't necessarily work narratively, whereas color can, of course, be, be very, very powerful as a, as a narrative element. But you're right. It's kept. The, also, it was done simply to keep the cost down. So yeah. We all know that was the why mangas, why mangas black and, and white mostly. Also, the fact that manga, um, I think European comic too, mm. tends to be created by a single person, while American comics, mainstream comic, is normally a team of uh, you know yeah. the writer and then the one who draws and the one who colors. Sure, there's so. certainly far far fewer sort of script writers of manga. Aren't yeah. there? There's a few and famous ones uh, like. Koike Kazuo, who wrote Lone Wolf and Cub, for example, he was uh, prolific. He wrote Lady Snowblood, that inspired uh, Kill Bill, for yeah. example. And so for me, that yeah, that yeah, makes it mm. yeah makes it more kind of more personal because yeah. it's the creation of uh, you know a one artist right. 
with a whole it's vision. Yeah, it's important to get that, but I think I'm, I always like the idea of it being the creation of one artist. It's the great <laughs> auteur theory, but actually um, what comes through in my, in, in, um, certainly in the British Museum's exhibition uh, is that uh, they do show the artworks, they show, but they also show, they also bring in the important role of the editor. Yeah, of course. Um, and that's not actually something that's not so all just straightforward as you might think, because certainly many other comic cultures, America, certainly France, I suspect, Editors are slightly stand well, can be quite standoffish. They're standoffish. They actually just say, "Go ahead and work this next year mm -hmm. on your forty-eight page masterpiece and come back with us." Whereas the editors, they are very much involved in the thinking, in the in, in almost helping the the mangaka, the manga artist, to express herself or himself, find her voice, find her, realize her potential. Um, find the themes perhaps that they might never have even considered doing um, and that synergy is very very special it's for me slightly problematic because um, there is, I just have this I just have this fantasy that of the idea of the artist just going off <laughs> and doing their own thing basically and being completely self-motivated um, but on the other hand I know that talking to people about this the editors uh, have a very. I, I've been an editor I've edited uh, comics magazine and as an editor you can really help Sometimes you, people need something to, to res someone to respond to their work and make it better, and um, need to be questioned why this this story isn't working or this character isn't working. And that may be one of the secrets of manga's quality is that it has very good editors working closely. Where to most of the, to most in most of the countries you do not have much hands-on editing going on. Um, editors are kind of almost a fictional figure in themselves. They're kind of like traffic managers I, I, or events. You see a lot of manga yeah. that features editors but or in the asides. Stories, yeah. you mean? Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 and then the other little secret world of, of manga is that there's also managers. There are artist managers. Mm. And I, I met, I've met a couple of them over the years and they, they have a little group as well that gets meets up and they all kind of go, oh my gosh, my artist is terrible. <laughs> He's always late or this kind of thing. But uh, so it's an interesting, there's, there's more levels to this world. Um, we should just touch on the British uh, Museum Yeah, I think in the last we? 10 minutes we can yeah, talk about... We can talk for hours. Yeah, like this. the, you know, the upcoming... This, this is a landmark. I mean, yeah, I, don't think, I, don't think, I, don't think, I certainly couldn't have imagined it happening. Uh, certainly not when I was you know, reading my first mangas in the 70s and 80s. Like the the summary of it uh, is it says um, the city manga exhibition is held in the Sainsbury Exhibition Galleries of the British Museum from the 23rd of May to the 26th of August and links contemporary examples of manga and digital forms of anime to their historical roots. Incorporating both domestic Japanese and related international forms, it weaves this into a series of connected themes. Uh, Paul, you've seen the preview of the show. Can yeah, you tell yeah. us something about yeah, it? We're actually still installing it. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, I can. It's a, an elaborate show. It's very, very well done in, in six sections. And the one of the clever kind of motifs they've used is they've connected the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland to the rabbits in the old, very early scrolls that are the origins, one of the origins of, of manga. And mm -hmm. there's the rabbit in there. He's the kind of like the guide. Um, and they've cleverly um, made a point of explaining to people who are probably quite new to manga how it works. They've shown how to read it. They've shown the, some of the symbols, some of the, the literally the, the special, special um, qualities of the medium so that people can find a way into the, into the material. And there's a, I have never seen so much original artwork from manga in one place. It really is. You go, they've got that, and they've got that person, they've got that series. It's quite incredible. I mean... And what's interesting about this exhibition is it's not just kind of nothing. The British Museum has been kind of building up to this for at least about 10 years or so. Um, they've done a couple of exhibitions before, little ones, and mm -hmm. in the gallery, just as you come in the door on the right, it's the Asahi Shinbun Japanese Gallery. They even commissioned, as you may know, um, Yok Hoshino Yokinobu, the, um, the manga artist, to make a manga set in the British Museum oh, with yeah. his mm -hmm. Professor Munakata mm. character. Have you, have you read that? It's, <laughs> yeah, a, it's yeah. an insane manga. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> they, they kidnapped Stonehenge. <laughs> that's, the start. This is, that's just the starting point. It is just bom fantastically bonkers. At the same time, Munakata is a great character because he uh, fits perfectly with the British Museum because he's a super sort of archaeologist investigator kind of Indiana Jones meets Circle Poirot kind of character and beautifully drawn and they were testing all the way to get what was the reaction like is there a mm. is there an interest here and at the same time I got to I've got to know Tim Clark who's the one of the top people in their Japan collections and they have been collecting manga artwork they've been collecting for some time now they've been saying this is important we need to have this they've even been, they've been displaying manga in the Japan galleries alongside mm other stuff, whether it might be Hokusai or it might be fantastic porcelain or 
dogu figures or whatever it might be. Uh, so it's been a cumulative effect. Um, and I was brought in a f some years ago, even, uh, even before those exhibitions, to curate a little exhibition, a, a season rather, of anime, which is great fun to do. And again, all testing the audience. So this is the climax, if mm. you like, of that. And it couldn't have happened, though, without... Another interesting development that's happened only since December 2016, and I've only just heard about this in the last few days, it's in, mentioned in the catalogue, um, an organisation called the Organisation for the Promotion of Manga and Anime, OPMA, which has not existed until December 16. And that has facilitated what is an, is an, a, an impossible show, even in Japan. Japan. Even Japan hasn't really seen a show like this, partly because, of course, you don't need the introduction back. <laughs> <laughs> in Japan, because it's kind of every day. It's like TV, as I've, I was saying. But also because it's quite difficult to get these giant publishers to always collaborate. I mean, they're very happy to do a big Shonen Jump exhibition or a big um, you know, solo artist ex exhibition or a character's anniversary exhibition. But to have them come together is quite kind of difficult. And certainly difficult for uh, even something as big as the British Museum just to go in and say, can we do this? And we're just going to talk to everybody and... So that has this organization was partly set up to go, we must make this happen. We need something that can enable manga and anime to be more easily promoted internationally and bring all this incredible work together. So it's it's remarkable. I think it's, it's an absolutely unique opportunity. Really and is. I really hope it <clears throat> helps kind of, uh, because it's a British mission, I hope yeah. it gets legitimize manga yeah. in a way because I still encounter a lot of resistance to take manga seriously and right. you know I wish there was more uh, a scholarship about yeah, manga especially yeah, yeah. here yeah, yeah yeah I think it will do that I mean it has got a big reading area where you can in the middle of a recreation of one of the, one of the most famous longest running shops which sadly closed back in March it was a famous manga shop um, and yeah on the poster of course as we were discussing they've got this marvelous manga called Golden Kamui and the, the woman on the cover is a, an Ainu, who is one of the indigenous people of the north of Japan in Hokkaido. And it's another example of where you go, manga can do anything. It's making Ainu culture uh, accessible. It's set in the past, historical story, very exciting story. But at the same time, it's able to bring in all of their... Um, it's, it's a very good manga, and I think yeah, it's, very it's very accessible. It really is, like, and exciting. Some mangas are more are less accessible. Than, yeah, but I, I would you know encourage people to pick up Golden Kamui yeah. because it's rare that you know an indigenous character is as right. prominent as a right. Sirpa. Yeah. And we don't realize this, but in fact, Japan's got a you know there 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 are. They're the equivalent to the Native Americans in, in America or mm. the Aborigines in, in Australia. Whatever they, they, the, the country is still working out how to deal, mm. how to respect uh, these people that are, were there before they were there. So that's, that's important too. And I think, yeah, the, 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 obviously the, the, the question still remains, though, for me, though, is that manga still has that edge, still has that, uh, that which would mean that when I, the show I did, the show that I curated called Mangasia, Wonderlands of Asian Comics, which is the, an exhibition that opened in 2017 in Rome, went on to Milan, then went on to Nantes, and is now going through a very laborious approval process to try and get it into Shenzhen in China, which we may not, we just have to hope it happens. At the moment, it's been very delayed. But there we wanted to make sure that as we, we covered um, all kinds of manga, but also we, at least 50% of the show is manga, half of it. The other half is, is how manga is influenced or sometimes uh, how... It's been ignored because they've got other local forms across Asia. As in, it's a hugely complicated, interesting subject. And we were able to show nearly 300 original artworks. We've got extraordinary fine art and sculptures and things. Um, the British Museum show has got some of that, uh, but its biggest strength, I would say, is it's showing sequences. It does show individual pages, but it actually tries to show actual extracts even complete short stories in the original artwork wherever possible and with English either translated alongside or on, as overlays over the top. The so you can get an idea of so the you, narrative power of Because that's manga. the point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, the point about manga is it's storytelling yeah. and the genius of, of, of giving people a taste of a story and if you can make that effort to just that read a few pages and go, this is the magical thing, we hope they'll be buying manga as well mm -hmm. and enjoying them like we do. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I, I encourage everybody to go check that yeah. exhibition because it's really a landmark. It is, and they have a very impressive program of, uh, of, of events going on. Um, one of the things that I'm hosting, which is going to be exciting, is I think near the very end of the show, around the end of July sometime, I've, uh, it's, it's in the program. But the idea came about because I was talking to the organisers and they were saying, we've just had this show on a Syrian 
culture. The mm. Ashurbanipal king, the famous yes. king, and they included an element in the exhibition where uh, it was some kind of uh, narrative carved thing where they were doing projection or laser or something which actually allowed people to suddenly realize, okay, this is how you can read this story. It's a story. It's not just, mm. and I can see how the story works. And I was saying, well, there, there are probably a lot of these things are actually in the British Museum. The British Museum is actually full of hidden comics or, or more you know, narrative art that predates comics. And it wouldn't be fun to kind of bring some of these experts together and alongside the manga exhibition talk about how actually this is a, a human drive to tell stories in pictures that goes right, right, way, way back, certainly back to hieroglyphics, of course. They've got them in the British Museum. So it's going to be called All the World's a Comic, and it's going to be a symposium. Famous Irving Finkel, who is a, 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 just the most amazing man to me. He knows, he knows so much about, the, about ancient um, uh, art forms and writing systems and things. He'll be taking part, and I'll just be there just going, uh, I'm hosting <laughs> it. Um, and they've also... Uh, they've got a whole lot of other programs, workshops, and other events happening, so it's good. Well, uh, we are running out of time. It's uh, almost yeah. three o'clock, so I just wanted to thank Paul again for coming thank on the you, show. Thank um, This has been... Gracias. Uh, <laughs> de nada. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Sweet 212, and I've been your host, Lara Alonso Corona. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.